This is the What If I Told You podcast, a show where we aren't superstitious, but we are a little stitious. Yeah, and we should have saged the room before we tried to record this the first time. Uh, yeah. So we're super sorry that we weren't here last week. It's really a long story, and I think we're both a little scarred from it, so we don't necessarily need to get into it, but we had some technical difficulties. Yeah, let's just say we recorded a full 90-minute episode and had to trash it. Yeah. Um, my mic wasn't working. Yeah. So when we listened back to it, you could kind of hear me off in the distance from Madeline's mic. Yeah. So. So it was like I was recording just me and you were talking to us like... From the other room. Yeah. Like I was like downstairs with the door closed. That's what it sounded like. Yeah. Okay. I can still hear you. Yeah. It was garbage. So we could have just just put it out there and then people could have filled in the blanks. (laughs) (laughs) Play a game. Let's guess what the real story is. Per usual, please check out all of our social channels. Um, Our TikTok. There's a lot of shit on there now. The Instagram also has a lot of shit. And our email is what if I told you podcast at gmail.com. Yes, it is. Send us an email. Give us some suggestions. I mean, we have like a shit ton of things that we have to talk about for episodes, but there's always stuff that we don't think of, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Get on it. I'm just staring into the face of our golden skull. It doesn't feel like a Saturday to me. No, it doesn't. It kind of feels like a Sunday. I feel, I don't know. It's just been weird. Yeah. Well, time isn't real. Yeah. Um, I'm having water for breakfast. Haven't had a single thing other than that. I had a few bites of flan. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, the other day, I went to Costa Vida. Oh. Right? Yeah. And I thought to myself... I never get dessert at Costa Vida. What are the options? And it said flan. And I was like, sure. We'll take some of that and I'll eat it a few days later. Yeah. I literally didn't eat any of the flan the day that I got it. I com- I put it in the fridge and I was like, I'll come back to this. No, I didn't. How is the flan left over? It's good. It's just custard. Yeah. So it holds up. I mean, you know, it's only like two days. But as long as you put it in the fridge, your flan's good to go. Yeah, I think we're going to get lunch later. I'm super excited for that. I really need to eat, like, a large amount of Mexican food. Mm-hmm. Mexican is not Brody's first choice, but I think I need that. Where are you going to go? I don't know. There's, like, two by my house. Apparently yeah. the big one, you know what I'm talking about, by the Starbucks? Mm-hmm. Uh, my sister said that they give you free queso. That sounds like a lie. But I've been there one time and I didn't get free queso. Yeah, I don't... That seems like a bad business practice. Let's just give out free queso. Yeah, I mean, cheese has to be expensive these days. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you're a restaurant. Charge for your fucking food. Yeah. <laughs> the free salsa and chips is enough, okay? Yeah, yeah. That's why be- I come here. Um, let's see. Okay. Chip's Corner. Chip. Hey, Chip, when are you going to come back and record with us? Yeah. First and foremost. Come on down here, Chip. Um, Chip let us know how much a blimp 
costs because we're kind of upset that we don't have a blimp. Um, and they are 150 to $1,200 per day to rent, depending on the size. So I guess we're either talking a single person blimp or one that can fit 20 people. <laughs> <laughs> also $250 per day per mile. So you're paying for the blimp and you're paying for the miles. Yes. What's Dakota cooking? Eggs. Also, one degree in Kelvin equals 457.87 degrees in Fahrenheit. So 7,400 degrees in Kelvin equals 3.3 million degrees Fahrenheit. And that's when we were talking about, like, stars and shit on the Zamora episode. Yeah. This conversation is giving me, like mad deja vu because we literally had this conversation one week ago i know and i'm trying (laughs) to be natural um so we're just gonna get right into it yeah i mean i obviously we're gonna be natural but it just like hearing the chips corner my first instinct was to say no wait we already did that chips corner and then it's like well right and then we had to throw it away right (laughs) so there's a Listener discretion today, like, for reals. Straight up for reals. If anything involving, um, like, torture and murder and sexual assault triggers you, please don't listen to this episode. This is probably one of the worst, if not the worst, things we have covered. It really is. Yeah. It's, It's up there. Yeah. So, today, we are talking about... The toolbox killers. Yes. Yes, we are. Um, Speaking of the toolbox killers, I wrote down the name of the other toolbox killer. So apparently out here in the world of serial killers, we can't come up with anything more creative. So we have two sets of serial killers called the toolbox killer. Mm-hmm. The one I was thinking of whenever the documentary, this documentary came out on Peacock like a month ago or whatever, when I first saw just the title, it made me think of this guy and his name is, well, Jesus H. I covered it up with a different sticky note. This is how I keep myself straight. Sticky notes. David Parker Ray. Oh, okay. So I heard a podcast episode on David Parker Ray years ago, and I they referred to him as the toolbox killer. And so when I saw this documentary, like just the thumbnail, I was like, oh shit, that is fucking wild. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it, and I was like, no. This isn't the same. This, <laughs> this isn't it. <laughs> so we'll have to do one on David Parker Ray at some point, because yeah. I think it's actually worse than this. Oh. Well, I mean, I guess if you've caught the name Toolbox Killer, it's probably pretty bad. Yeah, there's, yeah, you know, there's a certain level involved when that's your name. But I'm, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's probably, it's really bad. It's been several years since I heard it, so I don't remember the full story, but we'll figure it out and do an episode on it sometime. We have the next three months planned, so it'll be a long time. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) 
So today's toolbox killers are Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker. Um, we will go over later how we hate the name Roy, especially with the last name Norris. Yeah. Fucking say, if you're going to name your kid something, say the full name a couple times in a row. Roy Norris. Roy Norris. Roy, Roy Norris. Norris. Roy no, Norris. it's terrible. Roy Norris. <laughs> Sounds it's like bad. rhinoceros. See, yes. No one wants to be associated. Well, rhinos are majestic creatures and we should preserve them. But Absolutely. Still. Like always, we're going to list the victims first. Lucinda Lynn Schaefer. On June 24th, 1979, um, Lucinda was only 16 years old and she was last seen leaving a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach. Can I just cut in for a second? Yeah. And make a comment that has nothing to do with Lucinda Schaefer. It has to do with the fact that we're sitting in the dark (laughs) with candles, skulls, and I'm drinking out of a spooky mug. And it's April. And it's April. (laughs) And this is a cult. We're in a cult now. Yeah. A cult of two. Let's keep it that way. Let's keep it that way. I don't want to be on the news. (laughs) no no. travel channel yes news no (laughs) yeah let's steer clear of the news anyway back to lucinda um next is andrea joy hall she was only 18 years old and she was last seen on july 8th 1979 hitchhiking along the pacific coast highway and keep in mind this time period it was very popular and normal to hitchhike. Yeah. Which is weird because the country was just rampant with serial killers. Yeah. And this could be one of those things like what came first, the chicken or the egg? What came first, hitchhiking or serial killing? Right. You know, a circle has no beginning and no end. Yeah. So if you continue hitchhiking, people continue serial killing. Yeah. So if you're hitchhiking currently, you're probably going to get picked up by a serial killer. Just the odds are just so much higher. So think about this and maybe start hitchhiking with a dog. Yeah. That's good. You know, like an Irish wolfhound. They're large. I would love an Irish wolfhound. Yeah. They're large. They're loyal. Yeah. They're probably super sweet, but I doubt anyone would approach you with one. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's like April. No one's going to approach me when I'm walking April, but... She does have a little stranger danger in her, though. Yeah. Like, you know, she's standoffish until she knows you're cool. Right. Which is what I love about her. Yeah. It's, you know, a big, big pro to having a dog. Yeah. Or get yourself an all-black German Shepherd. Yeah. Those are so menacing. (laughs) But, I mean, listen, I would have one. Yeah. They look like wolves. I would have a wolf. I would also have a wolf. There, see, listen, there are like all these TikToks out there where people are talking, they're like skits where they show like an actual full grown wolf. And then the commentator's like, this is a wolf. It is so tall and can rip out your throat. But a white woman will walk up to this, put a bonnet on it, and take it home. Yeah. And it's like, you're, you're right. Yeah. If I came across <laughs> that guy in the woods, I would try and tempt him to me. Yeah. Come on. Come here. Come here, buddy. <laughs> Let's go now. Let's get in the car. I'm your new mommy. 
Next is Jackie Doris Gillum. She was last seen September 3rd, 1979. She was 15 years old. And um, she was last seen sitting at a bus stop near Hermosa Beach. Jacqueline Leah Lamp. She was last seen on September 3rd, 1979 at the bus stop with Jackie. And she was only 13. And last, we have Shirley Lynette Ledford on October 31st, 1979. Um, she was standing outside of a gas station hitchhiking home from a Halloween party in the Sunland to Junga suburb of Los Angeles, and she was 16 years old. The ages of these girls is just so, like, I just, everything about it is just really sad. Yeah. And it makes me sad. And I just hate everything about it. Everything about it. Okay. Sorry, I just had to make a video of this here. Perfect. You know. Um <clears throat> Okay, so those are the victims and now we're gonna do the profiles of the horrible, terrible people who Ended their time on this earth. Yeah. So first we're going to start with Lawrence Bitteker. He is the main guy covered in the documentary on Peacock. So the documentary on Peacock's title is Toolbox Killer instead of Killers. But there is two guys who commit all of these crimes. Yeah. So don't let that fool you. This is a two-man job. Lawrence Bittaker just happens to be the one that they covered more. Yeah. For whatever reason. Uh, I don't know. The documentary is... Have you watched it yet? No. No. Yeah. Uh, it's weird, actually, because the... So it talks about the crimes, obviously, but it seems like the main premise of the documentary is about this girl journalist mm-hmm. who befriends him while he's in prison and she even like takes her baby to see him and stuff it's very odd that's ridiculous they like have a they like write letters back and forth and correspond like that she goes and visits him she talks to him on the phone it's very strange for someone who is in uh prison for murdering underage girls i think the last thing i'd want to do is bring my children around them absolutely even in a secure facility. Absolutely. That's disgusting. Of course, I would, if I were a journalist, uh, I would go and interview a serial killer. Right, but maybe find a babysitter. Yeah, I'm not going to take my infant child with me. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, <laughs> I know that your name is the toolbox killer, which has the worst implications, but here's my baby. Yeah, you want to hold her? Yeah. Very, it was a, such a weird aspect of the documentary that I was just kind of making that face, you know? Yeah. I'm making it at you now, and nobody else can see it. Right. It's the confused and a little bit grossed out face. Anyway, Lawrence Bittaker. Uh So his full name is Lawrence Sigmund Bittaker, and he was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, September 27th, 
and he was the unwanted child of a couple who had chosen not to have children. They didn't make that choice very well, considering yeah. it didn't work, because they had one. Uh, he was placed in an orphanage by his birth mother and then adopted by Mr. and Mrs. George Bitteker. I don't know Mrs. Bitteker's name because she, her identity was subsumed into her husband's. Yeah. Anyway, um, Bitteker's adoptive father worked in aviation, and this required the family to frequently move uh, around the U.S. throughout his childhood. So kind of like a military brat experience without actually being in the military. Yeah. So I'm guessing that his dad worked with the military in aviation because this is like the 40s and 50s they were really the only ones doing aviation at the time i'm sure um bideker was first arrested for shoplifting at the age of 12 and just proceeded to add to this minor petty criminal record over the next several years so you know he was a stealer and a shoplifter for most of his adolescence um, and this brought him to the attention of the juvenile authorities, of course. So, <sighs> Bitteker would later in life claim that these theft-related offenses had been attempts to compensate for the lack of love he received from his parents. So, apparently, Mr. and Mrs. George Bitteker were not the most loving parents. What a surprise. I'm super shocked. And... <clears throat> Bitteker was also reported to have an IQ of 138, which is high, um, but he still dropped out of high school in 1957 at the age of 17, uh, so he's probably like a junior, which I always find like, hey, you're almost there. Why are you dropping out? Well, yeah, and back then they didn't have kindergarten, so he could have even been a senior. True, true. Come on, man. All you had to do was just attend. High school is like the easiest. Well, it's not like he was going to use any of that for anything. So That's true. You know. That's true. Man, maybe if you would have finished that one year. Yeah, it would have made a difference. It would have made a difference. Stay in school, kids. Um, but by this stage in his adolescence, he and his parents were living in California and within a year of dropping out, he had been arrested for car theft, hit and run, evading arrest, and he was imprisoned in the California Youth Authority, and he remained there until he was 18. When he got out of the California Youth Authority, he discovered his parents had disowned him and moved to another state, and he would never see them again. So, I don't think there was any love lost here sounds like yeah they sucked yeah it got really dark by the way yeah it did <laughs> so within days of his parole from the california youth authority when he was 18 he was arrested for transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines in august of 1959 he was sentenced to 18 months in prison and that was to be served in the oklahoma state reformatory he was later transferred to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri, to serve the remainder of his sentence. That's pretty close. Local. In 1960, he was released from prison and then soon reverted to crime once again. 
And within months of that release, he had been arrested in Los Angeles for robbery. And in May of 1961, he was sentenced to 15 years. Um, While incarcerated for this robbery, he was diagnosed by a psychiatrist as being highly manipulative. And the psychiatrist also described Bitteker as, quote, having considerable concealed hostility. Certainly. I find it crazy that being manipulative is a diagnosis here. Ridiculous. I don't understand. Manipulation is a symptom of a different disorder, I think. Yeah. Or just a tactic. Yeah. Or some people just have, like... They're just a manipulator. Yeah. It's not that... I don't know. I just feel like they could have diagnosed him as being something else. Clearly, there's latent mental health issues. That's true. And trauma and... I don't know. Some other things at play here. Yeah. But still. So, he was actually released in 1963 after only completing two years of that 15-year sentence. In October of 1964, he was again sent to prison for a parole violation. In 1966, he underwent further examinations by two independent psychiatrists, both of whom classified him as a borderline psychopath. See, this is what I'm talking about. This is what I needed from the first one. Yeah. Um, which is a highly manipulative individual unable to acknowledge the consequences of actions. He explained to one of them that his criminal activities gave him a feeling of self-importance, although he insisted circumstantial matters pertaining to his environment and upbringing decreased his ability to resist committing crimes. Um, He was then prescribed antipsychotic medication and a year later, he was again released into society. So they have a lot of faith in this guy. Yeah, they just keep putting him back out there. A month after his parole in July of 67, he was again arrested and convicted of theft and of leaving the scene of an accident. He was sentenced to five years this time, but was actually released um, in April of 1970. And you guessed it, in <laughs> March of 1971, so just a year after he was released, he was arrested for burglary. So due to repeated parole violations, he was sentenced to serve between six months and 15 years. So that's a fucking span. That's that's broad as hell. Yeah. Um, that happened in October of 71. But three years later, he was again released from prison. But, I mean, you know what? That's within the range. Uh, Yeah. In 74, so same year he was released, he was arrested for an assault with attempt to commit murder after he stabbed a young supermarket employee who had accused him of stealing. The employee had observed him stealing a steak and then followed him outside and into the parking lot where he asked Bittaker whether he had forgotten to pay. Bittaker then responded by stabbing him in the chest, and it narrowly missed his heart. He then attempted to flee, but was quickly restrained by two other employees. And the employee who was stabbed, Gary Louie, actually did survive. And Bittaker was convicted of the lesser charge of assault with a deadly weapon, and then sent to the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. What's crazy is that 
when he tried to flee, he was restrained by two supermarket employees. Like, well, they could have been big guys, strong I mean, teenagers. True. I just like good job, supermarket employees, yeah. coming to the aid of your fellow man. Absolutely. And restraining this guy so he like answers for his crimes. Yeah. That's not, that would not happen today. I feel like people would just Probably be not. like they just get out their phones. Yeah, they just be recording you. Yeah. As you lay on the ground and lose your life's blood. Mm-hmm. People cool. suck. People suck. Okay, so now we're going to go to the profile of, you guessed it, Roy Norris. And his horrible name. It's the worst. It gets worse because Maddie's about to read his middle name with his first and last. And it's just not acceptable. Stop it. Stop it. Okay, so his childhood. Now, here here it is. His full name, Roy Lewis Norris. <laughs> No, no. This just sounds like, like sim lingo. Say that again. Roy Lewis Norris. Yeah, it sounds like a sim saying like, how's your day been? No, I hate it. Everything about it is is the worst. First of all, he was destined to serial kill. Yeah, first of all, the name Roy. It sounds like it's a nickname it's been shortened from something else, but it isn't. Roy is like a farm dog name. Exactly. That's exactly right. I'm picturing like a bloodhound. Yeah. If your name is Roy and you're we're, you're listening to us, um, you're probably of age to get your name changed legally. So go ahead and do that. Certainly. I, the money is trivial when compared to your quality of life when you pick a different name. Yeah. I mean, Roy? And... You know, I just think of The Office and Pam's fiancé at the beginning of the show as Roy, and he's just kind of a dick, you know? It's just a name that is just a sound. Yeah. Roy. No. Absolutely not. No, thank you. And Lewis Norris, stop it. What? I assume this could be incorrect, but having Lewis as a middle name sounds like maybe... His mom's maiden name was Lewis, and so that's why it's his middle name. That happens. Maybe his dad's name was Lewis. Or maybe his dad's first name was Lewis. Or maybe his dad's middle name was Lewis. Maybe we have several Roy Lewis Norrises in that family, actually. I hope not. I hope not. Um, Either way, like I said before, if you are about to name a child... Say the full name out loud several times. Mm-hmm. How do you feel when you say it in full several times out loud? Yeah, because Roy Lewis Norris is a fucking tongue twister. Yeah, say it several t- Roy Lewis Norris. Roy Lewis Norris. I can't even do it. <laughs> See? <laughs> then you say to yourself, okay, that one's out. Something's, we got to change something up here. Yeah. My mouth does not want to form those sounds together. Yeah. So we have to move on to a different choice. Let alone Roy. Yes, certainly. Don't go for Roy. Especially after you hear about this Roy. So he was born in Greenlee, Colorado on February 5th, 1948. So he is eight years younger than Lawrence Bittaker. I don't think that comes... To being necessary, but we're just going to say it. Yeah. He was conceived out of wedlock. Gasp! 
their parents should go to jail. Fuck. I mean, we've got a bastard child. Come on. His parents had married to avoid the social stigma surrounding illegitimate birth. Okay. What is this, Downton Abbey? I mean, it was the 40s. That's true. I mean, it's close to when Downton Abbey... Downton Abbey is happening at this time. Uh, I've been watching a lot of Downton Abbey. I'm sorry. Uh, The British aristocracy is wildly fascinating to me. Mm. So, I will continue to consume any type of media that is about the British aristocracy. From its inception all the way current. I'll watch it all. I watched Mary Queen of Scots about Queen Elizabeth I. Excellent movie. Loved it. Anyway. So Norris's extended family lived relatively close to the home of his parents uh, because Norris's grandfather had real estate investments. I'm guessing his grandpa's real estate investments benefited his parents. Had to have. Had to have. Uh, his father worked in a scrapyard. His, his mom was a drug-addicted housewife. Uh, he only occasionally lived with his parents, though. Throughout his childhood and adolescence, he was repeatedly placed in the care of foster families throughout the entire state of Colorado. I don't know why his grandparents didn't step up. Yeah. I, whenever I was first writing this and it came to that portion where it said that they lived close to his grandparents, I was expecting it to say he's lived with his grandparents most of the time. Yeah. But then it went on to the foster system and I was like, okay, well that took a turn. Um, so Norris's childhood recollections were interspersed with memories of wrongful accusations while living with his biological parents and then being neglected by the many foster families he lived with. He was frequently denied food, clothing. He claims to have been sexually abused. And he claims that this abuse came from his time spent with a Hispanic family and would later state that the prejudice he felt towards Hispanic people originated from the abuse he endured with this family. Okay. So, he's a racist. Um... While living with his birth parents as a teen, he visited the home of a female relative who was in her early 20s. He began speaking to her sexually suggestively. So he was being a pervert. And she was like, nah, get out of my house. And then told his dad. So then his dad just subjected him to horrible physical abuse. Ugh. This sounds like a terrible life. Yeah. Um, So after this occurrence, Norris stole his dad's car, drove it to the Rocky Mountains, and attempted to commit suicide by injecting pure air into his artery. Chip, this is where you come in. Mm -hmm. Please tell us about the pure air thing. Yeah. Where do you get pure air? Um, But maybe we are taking it too literally. Yeah. And it could just mean, like, nothing but air. Right. But who knows? Chip would know. Chip has to know. Yeah. So please tell us about pure air and and the debacle here. Yeah. Because this sounds not real to me. It 
seems like a really weird way to do that. Yeah. Weird thing to think of. Yeah. It seems like an odd place to go first. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Obviously, he did not manage to pull off the suicide. And he was later apprehended as a runaway and returned to his parents. And when he turned, he, when he returned home, his parents told him that he and his younger sister were unwanted children. This is a theme here. And that the parents intended to get a divorce whenever Norris and his younger sister both reached adolescence. So Norris was already an adolescent. His sister was younger. So they were just waiting for her to get to the teens. And their parents were going to just adios. Which sounds cool to tell your children. Um, So a year after this, Norris dropped out of high school and joined the Navy. He was stationed in San Diego in 1965 and was deployed to serve in Vietnam in 1969. Although he didn't see active combat during his four-month tour of duty, he was honorably discharged after one tour of duty. Also for Chip, I guess I could could also ask Dakota this, but I don't know if he would know. Um, Four-month tour of duty sounds wildly short. Especially for the Vietnam War. Yeah, I'm wondering, because typical tours now are, like, you sign a contract for four years of service. Like, right. That's what my brother did. That's what Dakota did. That's what Dakota's brother did. When you join, you serve four years, and then you can either re-enlist or get out. Yeah. So that's what all three of them did. And so I'm just curious if this four months was because of the war Because people were super fucked up from Vietnam, so they only did short tours. Or if he had a medical thing that caused him to get discharged. I feel like this would say medically discharged instead of honorably discharged, though. Yeah. So I don't... I I need to know more about this, Chip. Yeah, get on it. Get on it. So that just seemed super weird. Maybe they just offered him four months. I don't know. Could be. Super short. That's super short. Um, But anyway. So, yeah. That's where we are going to leave off on his early life. He had just gotten out of the Navy. And now, on to some of his first offenses. In November of 1969, he was arrested for his first known sexual offense. Um... He was charged with both rape and assault with attempt to commit rape. And in the latter accident incident, he had attempted to force his way into the car of a lone woman. Three months later, in February of 1970, he attempted to deceive a lone woman into allowing him to enter her home. And when this woman refused, he attempted to break into her house. She then called the police and they arrested him before he had the opportunity to cause her any harm. Less than three months after that offense, he was diagnosed by a military psychologist with a severe schizoid personality. He was given an administrative discharge from the Navy under terms labeled as psychological problems. Okay, so here's this that could be the answer to our question. 
Yeah. Um, in May of 1970, Norris, who was on bail for his latest offense, attacked a female student whom he had been stalking on the grounds of the San Diego State University campus. And um, he repeated, repeatedly struck her on the back of the head with a rock until she slumped to her knees before he repeatedly beat her head against the sidewalk as he knelt upon her lower back. And shortly after that, he was charged with assault with a deadly weapon and was committed to five years in prison at the Atascadero State Hospital. Um, and there he was classified as a mentally disordered sex offender. He was released from As Atascadero in 1975 with five years probation after having been declared by doctors as an individual who was, quote, of no further danger to others. How do you know? How do you know? And just three months after that release, he approached a 27-year-old woman walking home from a restaurant in Redondo Beach and offered her a ride on his motorcycle. When she declined, he parked his motorcycle, grabbed her scarf, twisted it around her neck, and... Um, informed her that he intended to rape her and then drug her into the nearby bushes. So fearing for her life, um, she did not resist the rape. So after bashing in a woman's head with a rock and then into a sidewalk and only serving five years in jail for it or in the state hospital for it, he's released as no danger and just right back at it. And just three months later, he assaults and rapes uh, a person. Yeah. In public. Mm-hmm. So, although the rape was reported to police, they were initially unable to find Roy. But one month later, the victim observed his motorcycle and noted the license plate number, which he immediately gave to police. And he was then arrested for the rape. And one year later, he was tried and convicted for this offense and sent to the California Men's Colony. And while he was incarcerated there, he met Bittaker. Uh, and they became friends. I just want to call out uh, did I, the 27-year-old woman that he raped. The fact that she then saw his motorcycle again and had the strength and wherewithal to write down the license plate number. Hell yeah. She. She's doing it out here. She faced her trauma. Yeah. Wrote down, you know, because everybody responds to trauma differently. And you never know if like seeing that would trigger and then make you panic and run away or whatever. Uh-huh. And she's like, nah, about to get this bitch. Obviously, Bitteker and Norris met in jail at San Luis Obispo in 1977. Uh, originally, Norris spent most of his time with the biker gang inmates, and he sold drugs and contraband and whatever. And then Bitteker and Norris became closer because Norris taught Bittaker how to make jewelry. Which is a, a really weird aspect of their relationship. It's adorable. 
And uh, I don't know what kind of jewelry because this is prison. So it's probably like toilet paper bracelets. Jail it makes me really grossed out, just in general. Yeah. I've watched a lot of jail shows and like they, you know, the inmates talk to each other through the toilet. I don't know if it was happening in the 70s, but now. Yeah. They, like, have conversations with, like, cups through the toilet, and I'm just... They make wine in the toilet. What is what is with the toilet, well, first of all? Um, but it just real. I find it really off-putting. Anyway. Um, Norris also says that Bittaker saved him from being attacked by fellow inmates on at least two occasions. And by 1978, they had a, quote, close relationship... And it was at this point that they began talking about their shared interest in sexual violence and misogyny. So Norris felt like he was comfortable enough to tell Bitteker that his biggest stimulation was seeing frightened young women. And he added that this was the primary reason he had amassed a lengthy record for sexual offenses. While Bittaker had never been known to commit violent or sex-based offenses, except for the stabbing of the grocery store worker, he expressed to Norris that if he did ever rape a woman, he would make sure to kill her so there was no one to ID him. Hmm. Fucking cool. So, in these little tete-a-tetes, the pair went so far as to even make plans to assault and murder teenage girls once they were both released. They really fantasized about murdering one girl from each teen year from age 13 all the way through to 19. That's really fucking gross. Yeah, that's very specific of them. It's really specific and just... No. 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 So this is the moment you've all been waiting for. And once again, please don't listen to this if you don't like this kind of shit. But I'm assuming if you're here, you do. So just use your own judgment. We're not going to get like super graphic with it, but if we say it, it's because it's a necessary detail. Yeah. there You, you can go to our sources and read some of them. They detail everything about the crimes or in the documentary, they do go into more detail about them. They also show f- some photos, but yeah, um, I don't really want to be gratuitously disgusting, so... No. So, from February to June of 1979, they picked up over 20 female hitchhikers. Um, they did not assault these girls in any manner, but these are just practice runs to basically make sure that they were able to lure girls into van in their van voluntarily um, and to like find secluded locations. So in late April, they found an isolated fire road in the San Gabriel mountains and um, Bittaker broke open the locked gate with a crowbar and then replaced the lock with one he owned. Now on June 24th, 1979, they killed their first victim, who was 16-year-old Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, 
and she was last seen leaving a Presbyterian church meeting in Redondo Beach. Now, at first, they were unsuccessful at trying to get her into the van with offers of marijuana and a ride home, so they drove further ahead and parked along a driveway. And Norris then got out of the vehicle, opened the passenger side door, which is like a sliding door, leaned into the van with his head and shoulders obscured from view from behind the door. And so when Schaefer passed the van, they just drug her into it without, you know, saying anything. They just shut the door. They drove off. They went to the fire road in the mountains. And once they got to this secluded location on the fire road, they then raped Lucinda. Norris would later state that Lucinda asked if they were going to kill her. And if they were, she asked if she could please pray before they did. And that is so, so sad. That makes me incredibly sad. Norris attempted to manually strangle her, but after approximately 45 seconds, he became disturbed at the look in her eyes and ran to the front of the van and threw up. So Bideker then manually strangled Schaefer until she collapsed to the ground and then began convulsing. He then took a wire coat hanger and twisted it around her neck um, with vice grip pliers until her convulsions ceased. Schaefer was denied her request to pray before Norris and Bideker killed her. Her body was unwrapped in a plastic shower curtain and thrown over a steep canyon that Bideker had selected. So that's mm. horrible. That's really horrible. And it just keeps getting worse. Um, on July 8th, 1979, around two weeks after the murder of Lucinda, Bideker and Norris came across 18-year-old Andrea Joy Hall. She was hitchhiking along Pacific Coast Highway. So as they slowed the van to offer Hall a ride, another vehicle actually pulled over and picked her up. And so, undeterred, Bideker and Norris followed the vehicle from a distance and waited for her to get out of the vehicle in Redondo Beach. It was then that Norris hid in the back of the van in order to make Andrea believe that Bideker was alone. So once inside the van, Bideker offered her a cold drink from the cooler, and obviously he was driving, so she had to go back to the rear of the van to get it. And once she did that, Norris popped out and fought with her, but managed to subdue her by twisting her arms behind her back. So he then gagged her and bound her wrists and ankles with tape. I don't know why I put adhesive tape, because if it's tape, obviously there's adhesive on it. That's so redundant. Anyway, um, at this point, again, Bideker and Norris drove to the fire road at San Gabriel Mountains, where they had taken Lucinda. And they, again, both raped Andrea. Bideker also made her pose for Polaroid photos, and at one point, Norris left Bideker and Andrea on a hill while he went to buy liquor. When he returned, Bideker informed Norris that he had told 
Andrea that he was that he was going to kill her and challenge her to give him as many reasons as she could come up with as to why she should be allowed to live. And then he thrust an ice pick through her ear and into her brain. He then turned her body over and thrust the ice pick into her other ear and stomped on it until the handle broke. He then strangled her and threw her body off of a cliff. Jesus Christ. Yeah. These just really make me sick. Yeah. To my stomach. On September 3rd, Bideker and Norris observed two girls named Jackie, Doris Gillum, and Jacqueline Leah Lamp sitting on a bus stop bench near Hermosa Beach. They had been hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway before Bideker and Norris observed them as they were resting at the bus stop. They offered the girls a ride, and they accepted it. And once inside the van, both of the girls were offered marijuana by Norris, which they also accepted. Shortly after the girls got into the van, they realized that Bideker was no longer on the Pacific Coast Highway, but was now driving toward the San Gabriel Mountains, and of course they began to protest. They tried to ease their concern, but neither Jacqueline nor Jackie were fooled by them, Jacqueline, who was only 13, even tried to open the sliding door. At that point, Norris hit her in the head with a bag full of lead weights until she became unconscious. He then began to bind Jackie, and soon after, Jacqueline regained consciousness and made a second attempt to escape the van again, and Norris went after her and drug her back. Bittaker then became aware that this was all happening in the open in view of potential witnesses, so he stopped the van, punched Jackie in the face, and then helped Norris bind both of the girls. And they were held captive for almost two days and endured repeated sexual and physical abuse, and their assaults were recorded by Norris and Bittaker. Jacqueline was forced to pose for photos with Bideker, and it seems like Jackie endured more of the sexual assault, and she had stab wounds to her breasts. Yeah, the description of this crime in particular is really horrific. Yeah. After two days, Jacqueline and Jackie were murdered. Jackie was struck in each ear with ice picks and then strangled, and Jacqueline was hit in the head with a sledgehammer and then strangled. That's so, so disgusting. And it makes me want to throw up, actually. It's super fucking violent. So violent. Oh, my God. Okay, so in on October 31st of 1979... Bitteker and Norris abducted their final victim, 16-year-old Shirley Lynette Ledford. Shirley was abducted as she stood outside of a gas station, and she was hitchhiking home from a Halloween party in the Sunland, Tawanga suburb of L.A. Investigators believe that Shirley accepted a ride home from Bitteker and Norris because she recognized Bitteker as he was known to have frequented the restaurant that she worked at as a waitress part-time. So, obviously, after she accepted the offer and entered the van, she was offered marijuana by Norris, which was a 
apparently the routine. She refused it and Bitteker drove the van to a secluded street. So this is the only one they don't go to the San Gabriel Mountains with. So they're on a secluded street. Norris drew a knife and then bound and gagged Shirley with construction tape. So Bitteker and Norris then raped her and tortured her for more than two hours. They recorded the assault on a tape recorder. And after the assault was over, Bitteker strangled Shirley. They decided to dispose of her body on the front lawn of a randomly selected home. That's horrifying. Jesus. Shirley was discovered by a jogger the next morning, and an autopsy revealed that in addition to having been sexually violated, she had died of strangulation after receiving extensive blunt force trauma to the head, face, breasts, and left elbow with her olecranon, her elbow essentially, sustaining multiple fractures. Her genitalia and rectum had also been torn which was caused in part by Bitteker having inserted pliers inside of her body. Jesus. Christ. I'm kind of glad we didn't eat first now. Um, Bitteker would later claim that the tape recording that he took of Shirley's assault and murder was actually a threesome. And that toward the end, she was screaming for him and Norris to kill her. I mean, that's... Somebody should have just, like, fucking hit him over the head with something really heavy. Yeah. At that point, they're like, uh, no. You're clearly lying. Now now we're going to hit you in the head. Ugh. With concrete. Okay. Now it's investigation time. In November of 1979, Norris became reacquainted with a friend named Joseph Jackson, which is another name I don't like to say. Joe Jackson. So I'm going to call him Joe, um, who was an individual that they had previously been incarcerated with at the California Men's Colony. Norris confided in Joe regarding his and Bedeker's exploits over the last few months including graphic details of the murder of Shirley. Um, who, and at the time, this was the only body that had been found. Norris also divulged to Joe that in addition to the five murders that they had committed, there had been three additional incidents in which he and Bitteker had abducted or attempted to abduct, abduct young women who had either escaped their attackers or in one instance had actually been raped but then released. Upon hearing these confessions, Joe consulted his attorney who advised him to inform, to inform authorities. Good job, Joe. So he then agreed and he and his attorney informed the Los Angeles Police Department who in turn relayed the two men to the Hermosa Beach Police. A Hermosa Beach detective <laughs> named Paul Bynum was assigned to investigate Joe's claims as to Norris's confessions of the murders, attempted abductions, and rapes that he had confided to Joe. Bynum initially noted that Joe's statements as to Norris's confessions did not match the reports on file of several teenage girls who had been reported missing over the last five months. In addition to that... The incident Norris had confided to Joe where he claimed he and Bitteker had sprayed mace in the face of a woman 
who had then been dragged into the van and raped by both men, matched a report filed in relation to an incident that occurred on September 30th. In this file, or in this report, a young woman named Robin Robeck had had mace sprayed in her face before being dragged into a van and raped by two Caucasian men in their mid-30s before being released. So, although she had reported the abduction and rape to police, they hadn't been able to identify her assailants. Bynum then dispatched an investigator to visit Robeck at her residence in Oregon to show her a series of mugshots, and without hesitation, she positively identified two photos um, of the men who had kidnapped and raped her on September 30th, and those two fo- those two individuals were Bideker and Norris. So, good job, Miss Robeck. Excellent job. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the charges and the all the other things. So, arrest. When they linked Bideker and Norris to the rape of Robin Robeck, the Hermosa Beach police then placed Norris under surveillance. Within days, they observed him dealing drugs, and on November 20th, 1979, he was arrested by Hermosa Beach police for parole violation. That same day, at the Burbank Motel, where Bideker resided, he was arrested for the rape of Robin Robeck. Although... Robin had identified mugshots of Bideker and Norris. She was actually unable to positively ID them in a physical lineup. Nevertheless, police had observed Norris dealing drugs and Bideker had actually been in possession of drugs at the time of the arrest. So both were both were able to be held on charges of parole violation. So they were able to keep these two fucks in jail while they got their ducks in a row on everything else. Yeah. Stop that. Um, when they searched Bideker's apartment, they found several Polaroid photos, which they later determined were Andrea Hall and Jackie Gilliam, both of whom had been reported missing earlier the same year. Inside the van, investigators discovered the uh, serial killing Mecca, of a sledgehammer, plastic bag with lead weights, book detailing how to locate police radio frequencies, a jar of Vaseline, and two necklaces later confirmed to belong to the victims. And they also found a tape recording of a young woman in obvious distress, screaming and repeatedly pleading for mercy while being tortured and sexually abused. So they found everything they needed, basically. Yeah. So the mother of Shirley Ledford, named by Joe Jackson as being one of the women who Norris had confessed he and Bittaker had killed, identified the voice on the tape of as that of her only daughter. The voices of the two men mocking and threatening her in the process of her torture and abuse were identified as being Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker. Also found in the motel were seven bottles of various acidic materials, and investigators would later discover that Bittaker had planned to use these on their next victim. Yeah. See, these kind of people only escalate. Yeah. They get desensitized at one level, so then they have to escalate to the next level. This is why they should not 
be at large. Yeah. Come on, people. Stop releasing people so often. So inside Norris's apartment, police discovered a bracelet he had taken from Ledford's body as a souvenir. And also, at the homes of both Bitteker and Norris were Polaroid photos of almost 500 teenage girls and young women, most of which had been taken at at Redondo Beach and Hermosa Beach, and some taking at the Burbank High School. Hmm. Fucking terrible. Most of these pictures obviously were taken without the knowledge or consent of the people in them. Right. Obvious. That should go without saying. First of all. On November 30th, 1979, Norris attended a preliminary hearing in relation to the September 30th rape. And by this stage, he was beginning to display visible signs of stress. At the hearing, Norris waived his Miranda rights before Detective Bynum and Deputy District Attorney Stephen Kay even began questioning him initially in relation to the rape of Robin Robeck, then in relation to the statements given to police by Joe Jackson and the evidence recovered from their residences. Initially, Norris flatly denied any involvement in the murders, rapes, or disappearances. However, when confronted with the evidence that they had compiled, he began to confess, and although he did attempt to portray Bitteker as being the more culpable in this situation than himself. I mean, obviously yeah. that's going to happen. And what Bynum and Kay later described as a casual, unconcerned manner. He divulged that he and Bitteker had been in the habit of driving around areas such as the Pacific Coast Highway and randomly approaching girls whom they had found attractive with offers of a ride, posing with the pair for photographs, and, you know, smoking weed, all that kind of stuff. But most of those whom they approached rejected whatever given ruse that they had used to entice them with, although four girls had accepted lifts from the pair and had been murdered, with a fifth victim, um, their first victim, being grabbed and forced into the van. So once inside the van, the girls would typically be overpowered um, and then be bound hand and foot and gagged and driven to the locations deep within the mountains where they would be sexually assaulted by both men and then usually killed by strangulation with a wire coat hanger. Although two of the victims had had ice picks driven into their ears before being strangled. Norris admitted to bludgeoning their youngest victim, Lamp, um, in the head with a sledgehammer as Bittaker strangled her and admitted to repeatedly striking Shirley upon the elbow with a sledgehammer before strangling her to death. The bottles of acid found at Bittaker's motel um, were intended for use upon the next victim, and this is what Norris told them. And the acts of torture and humiliation had been committed against their victims, quote, for fun. According to Norris, the next level of brutality that Bittaker had exhibited toward the victims had increased on each successive instance they had lured a girl into the van. So their final victim, Ledford, had actually pleaded to be killed in order that her agony could cease Additional details by Norris 
provided further corroborating evidence to support his confession. So, for example, he knew that their first victim, Schaefer, had left a meeting at a church shortly before she was abducted and that she had lost a shoe as she was being dragged into the van. He also knew that part of her ancestry was Hispanic and that he had unsuccessfully asked her to date him prior in October of 79. In a press statement relating to the police investigation into the murders issued on February 7, 1980, the L.A. County Sheriff Peter Pitches stated the victims had been subjected to sadistic and barbaric abuse, which is absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Adding that five charges of first-degree murder would be sought against both Bittaker and Norris. So, Sheriff Pitches also stated that in relation to the Polaroid pictures found in their apartments, they had located 60 of the women depicted, um, but none of them had been harmed. He also stated that police identified 19 of the women depicted in the pictures as being individuals who had been reported missing and that these teenage girls and young women may have been murdered, although um, he did stress that they had no conclusive evidence to suggest that these additional 19 women in the pictures had actually fallen victim to Bittaker and Norris. One of the Polaroid pictures seized from Bittaker and Norris depicts an unidentified white woman with um, Bittaker and Norris alone, and circumstances very similar to the pictures found depicting known victims, Hall, Lamp, and Gillum. The young woman in the pictures has never been identified, and this photograph is indicative there may have been one further victim whom neither Bittaker or Norris ever mentioned to investigators. Oh, that's horribly troubling. Um, so, next Investigators obviously needed to search the San Gabriel Mountains, and Norris agreed to take them to the San Gabriel Mountains to search for the bodies who had been disposed there. Um, in each instance, Norris brought detectives to the area, and even though they extensively searched it, their bodies were never found. The bodies of Schaefer and Hall were never found. Um, on February 9th, 1980, the skeletonized bodies of Jacqueline Lamp and Jackie Gilliam were found at the bottom of a canyon by a dry riverbed. Uh, the bodies had been scattered over an area measuring hundreds of feet in diameter. Um, obviously, after so long, you know, the yeah. elements and wild animals and such probably did that. But the ice pick was still lodged in the skull of Jackie Gilliam, and the skull of Jacqueline Lamp showed multiple indentations, which was evidence of the numerous uh, blows she sustained from Norris. Also in February of 1980, Norris and Bittaker were formally charged with the murders of the five girls, and at the arraignment, Bittaker was denied bail, whereas Norris's bail was set at 10000 which seems low. We do have to remember this is 1980, but that still seems really low. Yeah. But I'm guessing it's because he confessed, he took them to these places to find the bodies, and as we're going to see next, he is going to actually plead guilty. Yeah. 
Um, Norris had accepted a plea bargain in which he would testify against Bitteker in return for the prosecution agreeing not to seek the death penalty against him. Gotcha. On March 18, 1980, Norris pleaded guilty to four counts of first-degree murder and one count of second-degree murder, which was in relation to Hall, two counts of rape, and one count of robbery. His formal sentencing was postponed until May 7th. So in return for Norris's agreeing to plead guilty and to testify against Bittaker, prosecutors had agreed to seek neither the death penalty nor life, parole, nor life without parole at the upcoming sentencing hearing. That seems like uh, too far. Okay, you take the death penalty off the table, sure. But agreeing to also not seek life without parole? What? He still did this shit it, just because he's now telling you that he did it? Yeah. And testifying against his cohort? Who cares? You have enough evidence to get Bittaker without Norris's testimony anyway. Right. Like, you don't have to bend to this dude's will. That's so wild to me. Just fucking... They really went to bed that night, like, feeling good about that. Yeah. Excuse me, prosecutors. What are you doing? What are you doing here? Mm. Whatever. Prior to his May 7th sentencing, Norris was reviewed by a probation officer who testified that Norris had again accused Bittaker of the actual torture of their victims and that um, for Norris himself, the feeling of power and the dominance he had over the victims was the main overriding factor as opposed to having sexual intercourse with them. I don't buy it. No. I don't believe that. The probation officer also added that Norris never exhibited any remorse or compassion about his brutal acts towards the victims. The defendant appears compulsive in his need to inflict pain and torture upon women. And yet we're going to take life without parole off the table. Cool. Yeah. Cool. In conclusion, the probation officer testified that Norris, quote, can realistically be regarded as an extreme sociopath whose depraved pattern of behavior is beyond rehabilitation. Thank you. Thank you. So on May 7th, 1980, he was sentenced to 45 years to life in prison with eligibility for parole in 2010. No. Disgust. Absolutely not. No, thank you. I think he died in prison. Let's see. I'm looking that up right now. I'm pretty sure... He died in prison, but... Uh, okay, so Bitteker's trial. So on April 24th, 1980, Bitteker was arraigned on 29 charges of kidnapping, rape, sodomy, and murder, in addition to various charges of criminal conspiracy and possession of a firearm. He was also charged with two counts of conspiracy to commit murder dating from 1979, in which he unsuccessfully attempted to persuade two inmates... Uh, due to be released to murder Robin Robeck to prevent her from testifying against him. So the charges for the rape of Robin Robeck would later be dropped because lack of physical evidence and her failure to be able to identify Bitteker or Norris in a lineup, even though she identified them based on their mugshots. I think we're splitting hairs. Obviously, they did it. Anyway, 
When asked by Judge William Hollingsworth how he pleaded, Bitteker remained silent and refused to answer any questions. So in response, the judge entered a plea of not guilty on his behalf. This is standard. Um, that just means that it's going to go to trial. At the actual trial, Bitteker... Bitteker's defense claimed that Norris was the real perp and Bitteker was more of a bystander. Well, I'll be. I am astonished. So when Bitteker took the stand, he claimed he knew nothing of Lucinda Schaefer and that the other women were, quote, paid for their services. Disgusting. Um, Just stop it. Quick note. Roy Norris died of natural causes on February 24th, 2020. In prison in California. Yeah. Okay. Well, at least he's dead. Yeah. Um, it said that he was denied parole in 2009 and then wouldn't have been eligible for another parole hearing until he was denied in 2009 and 2019 and wouldn't be able to have another parole hearing until 2029, but he died. Good. Fuck him. Um, so, obviously... We have another passing the buck situation. Bitteker is owning up to absolutely nothing. On February 17th, 1981, after deliberating for three days, the jury found Bitteker guilty of five counts of first-degree murder, one count of conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, five counts of kidnapping, nine counts of rape, two counts of forcible oral copulation, one count of sodomy, and three counts of unlawful possession of a firearm. He'd been convicted of it all. Uh, deliberations as to whether Bitteker should be sentenced to death or life without parole began February 19th. Just 90 minutes, the jury spent deliberating and recommended death. Naturally. This makes so much sense. On March 24th, in accord with the jury verdict, Bitteker was formally sentenced to death. At the event... In the event that the sentence imposed was ever reverted to life imprisonment, Judge Thomas Fredericks imposed an alternative sentence of 199 years and four months imprisonment to take effect immediately. Um, when you enter a sentence into the system, you have to enter a number of years. Like, I've, when I worked at the state court and had to sentence someone to life in prison, there is a little checkbox in JIS that says life in prison, but you also have to enter a number of years. So the guy that I sentenced, I only did one. The guy that I sentenced name was Christopher Mysick. I'll never forget it. And I'll never forget the look of his victims either. It was one of the most traumatizing things I've ever experienced. Um, but he had like 14 counts of shit. And, um, it, the judge sentenced him for each count and it ended up being like 400 years. So you had to actually key in the number of years. The system yeah. just won't accept it without that. But you also have to click life in prison without parole. And I was making $13 and 50 cents an hour just to put that out there. I sentenced a man to life in prison without parole on that salary. So just hold that in your hat. Anyway, so um, an initial execution date for Bitteker was set 
for December 29th, 1989. Obviously, he appealed it, as they always do. And um, that happened, let's see, on June 11th, 1990, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the decision that he should be executed. So they did not accept his appeal. They were like, fuck you. We want to execute you. And an, a renewed execution date was scheduled for July 23rd, 1991. He again appealed to the Supreme... He again appealed the decision of the Supreme Court and was granted a stay of execution on July 9th, 1991. Which... Th- what's weird is this is the last stay of execution he gained. No other execution date was ever... State was ever scheduled and he just stayed on death row at San Quentin and died of natural causes on December 13th, 19 or 2019. Yeah. So literally a couple more, couple months before Norris died. Yeah. So he was 79 years old and just was died of natural causes from whatever. So I'm just so confused why they never, scheduled another execution date after this July 9th, 1991 stay of execution. I don't know. Because they never actually overturned his sentence. Right. And it was never commuted to life in prison without parole. It's just fucking weird. Maybe it's a a clerk error. Maybe. So that was horrible. That's it. Yeah, watch the documentary. I really need to. I still want to, but... Yeah. I mean, it's worth watching. Yeah, I started it, fell asleep because I was exhausted and just haven't. Yeah. So... Yeah. Um, There's... I did see the thumbnail for the new John Wayne Gacy documentary. I just don't think I want to watch it. I don't... I actually started to watch it the other day, but Mm -hmm. I was like... I just, I don't, I'm not in a JWG mood. I mean, I also feel like I already know everything there is to know about John Wayne Gacy. Yeah. We we did an episode on it and watched, there's a documentary on Peacock about it. The new one's on Netflix. I'm sure it's a good documentary. I'm, sh- I'm sure it's very well done. Netflix knows how to do a documentary. Yeah. I just am kind of like, you know. Yeah. Eh. You could have picked someone else. If you're going to use your resources to make a documentary about true crime, maybe don't pick one that Peacock also has. Maybe do a new one. We started watching, this was last night, we maybe watched 15 minutes of it before we went to sleep, but um, we started watching The 24 Faces of Billy Milligan. Okay. He was like a campus rapist and had like severe multiple personality disorder. I don't know anything about it. Mm Mm-hmm. But I'll let you know how the doc... It's on Netflix. I'm interested in that. The... I'm actually really interested in DID as a disorder just in general, which yeah. is Dissociative Identity Disorder. Um, just wildly interested in this. Yeah. I read the book Sybil, which is about a person with DID, um, years ago. And it's an excellent book. It's so good. It's She's not a murderer or anything. It's just, she was just a patient being mm-hmm. treated. It's fiction. It's not, like, real. But I think it is based on a real person that the author knew. But it's so good. If you ever read, if you're ever interested, read Sybil. It's so good. But 
that book made me really interested in it. And then there's that movie with um, James McAvoy where he has DID. Yeah, you've t- I've you've talked to me about that before. I think it's called Split. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what it's called, but it has James McAvoy and he has DID and I think he has he has a lot of different personalities. One of them's name is Patricia. That's the only one I remember the name of, but it that's an excellent movie. But yeah, super interesting disorder. Yeah, it's so far it's good. Um it seems very interesting. Mm-hmm. So I'll probably watch that later. Yeah. Maybe I'll watch that later. Who knows? Um, but we did this in a lot less time than our last one. Yeah. I think. So. Yeah. I think our last one clocked out at like an hour 45. Thank God, because it takes forever to edit something yeah. that long. So, well, um, I'm, I need more coffee and we're going to record a second one. Yeah. So. This is a short and sweet goodbye. Hey, be kind to each other. And stay weird. Bye. Bye.